Welcome to the world of unsexy. From scrap metal to timber, estate planning to freight pooling, this show is a meandering exploration of just how sexy unsexy industries can be. I'm your host, Elaine Zelby, investor at SignalFire and eternally curious human being. In this podcast, we'll peel back the layers of niche and esoteric markets, understanding the history and looking at the future through the eyes of the pioneering entrepreneurs willing to bring technology and exponential improvements to these often overlooked spaces. Join me on a fascinating journey into the unsexy. Hi, everyone. My guest today is Dr. Casey Means. Stanford-educated physician who spent four years as a resident physician in the Department of Otolaryngology, Head and Neck Surgery at OHSU. She's currently a co-founder of Levels Health, a company that's empowering individuals to radically optimize their health and well-being by providing real-time continuous glucose biofeedback coupled with personal insights. Thank you so much for joining us today, Casey. So happy to be here, Elaine. Thanks for having me. So first, I'd love to just hear a little bit more about your background and how you got into the field of medicine in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. So I was sort of uh, bit by the by the pre-med bug, the, the healthcare bug when I was an undergraduate at Stanford. I was there um, starting in 2005, and it was actually a really interesting time in the Bay Area because the Human Genome Project had just wrapped up and these direct-to-consumer uh, genetics companies like 23andMe were coming online. So it was a very exciting time for personalized medicine and genomics. And so that was kind of the the ecosystem and what was in the air when I was coming to healthcare. And I had the opportunity to work at 23andMe when I was in college. And um, so this intersection between healthcare and, and business and patients being empowered with their personal data was very, very alive for me. And something I loved about the whole personal genetics revolution was this idea that you know, humans are really kind of like a biochemical blueprint and our blueprint is our genes. And the difference between sort of health and disease is how that genome is expressed and how those genes are expressed. And some of the really big drivers in terms of how those genes are expressed are our dietary and lifestyle choices. And that got me really interested in this field called nutrigenomics, which is essentially how nutritional compounds affect gene expression. And there's just some really interesting stuff there, you know, um, there's compounds in food, like, you know, you think about curcumin from turmeric, and that actually goes into cells and changes the directly changes the expression of NF kappa B gene, which is a master inflammatory gene. So just thinking about this incredible intersection between, you know, what we're putting into our bodies, what we're exposing ourselves to, and the expression of different genes that have a profound impact on health. I found that incredibly empowering, because there's so much agency involved in that. And, you know, certainly, um, it's a health is a combination between genes and environment. But that environmental piece was very, very um, powerful and empowering to me and thinking how can we empower patients to understand what choices are going to lead to the best expression of health. So that was really what characterized my undergraduate studies. And then I went to med school and I was also at Stanford for medical school. And, you know, medical school was wonderful and, and a very exciting time. But I did, you know, notice that it was a bit of a different um, ethos there because conventional medicine and the way medicine is traditionally practiced is a bit more about sort of like pattern recognition. And it's it's quite reactive in the sense that we tend to um, we tend to approach and address um, patients when they've developed pathology and then react to that pathology either with, you know, lifestyle interventions, but also mainly with drugs and invasive interventions like um, surgeries. And so 
you know, when I say pattern recognition, what I mean is that when you see a patient, you go into the room with them and you collect a thorough history and you, you discern what their symptoms are. And then you collect objective findings, which are signs. And that means a physical exam finding or a lab or an imaging test. And you put together those signs and symptoms, the subjective and objective findings that the patient has. And if, you know, you have a certain um, set of signs and symptoms, you label it with a diagnosis. And if you have a diagnosis, then you can turn and say like, okay, here are the treatment modalities for that diagnosis. And so it's 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 quite reactive in that way. And there was much less of that personalized, you know, um, approach that I had sort of really been so obsessed with in my in my undergrad studies. So that was just sort of an observation I had. And um, you know, and I I having a background in, in nutrigenomics and and sort of a lot of the the personalized nutrition um, side of things, I was a bit disappointed that there there wasn't much in the way of nutrition training in medical school. I think nationally, um, only about medical students get only about ten hours on average of nutrition training throughout their entire medical school careers, which is you know, quite interesting now because most of the chronic diseases that we're facing and that are, you know, the biggest contributors to um, healthcare costs and also to chronic morbidity in our country are diseases that are rooted, at least in part, in dietary and lifestyle um, uh, choices and factors. And so it's really, you know, being able to modify those things um, and help a patient work towards better choices can be a major and hugely impactful lever in reversing chronic disease. And so, you know, we just, healthcare kind of hasn't fully caught up to that yet and made nutrition training a really huge part of medical school. So flash forward, went to surgery uh, as my residency training. I went into otolaryngology, had a neck surgery. And there I was um, treating basically, you know, surgical conditions of the ear, nose, and throat. And I noticed there about four and a half years into my practice, that's how long I practiced in that field, I was treating mostly inflammatory disorders and disorders fundamentally rooted in chronic inflammation. So sinusitis is inflammation of the sinuses. Chronic ear disease is inflammation of the the tissue inside the tube that connects the nose to the ear. When that gets clogged up, you get pus built up in the ear. That's an ear infection. Um, You know, Hashimoto's thyroiditis is inflammation of the thyroid. Vocal cord granulomas are inflammatory masses of the vocal cord you know, cancer is fundamentally an inflammatory disease. And so, or a mismanagement of how the immune system is managing cancer cells. That's, so there's, there's a lot that is, and I was dealing with a lot of head and neck cancer in my career. And so it was really interesting to me that, wow, we're a lot of the pathophysiology of the diseases I'm seeing are inflammatory in nature, but we're treating them with surgery. And it almost seems like a strange pairing because inflammation is the immune system in the body being revved up to fight a perceived threat. Um, and that's, you know, fundamentally an, an issue with um, the body thinking that it needs to be on high alarm and mount this immune response to fight something. But surgery doesn't actually address that issue. Surgery is more of an anatomic or like a plumbing type fix to sort of like um, open up some sort of blockage caused by that inflammation um, and, you know, relieve whatever buildup was caused by that. But it's kind of like fighting a, a war with like the wrong weapons. And so I became very, very interested in understanding this inflammatory piece a lot more deeply and kind of what is leading to chronic inflammation. And so many of our other chronic diseases outside of the head and neck are fundamentally rooted in inflammation, things like cardiovascular disease, you know, Alzheimer's dementia, um, you know, obesity, diabetes. A lot of these have chronic inflammation as a big portion of their underlying physiology. We know that inflammatory cytokines are upregulated in a lot of these diseases. So really a journey towards figuring out like what is causing a lot of this chronic inflammation and how can I affect that level of health? Um, 
much more on sort of the front end, the preventative side, and and not necessarily wait until people get to the state where they need to be in the operating room. And ultimately, what drives a lot of the chronic inflammation that people are dealing with is these exposures that we're that we're um, our bodies are faced with in our modern world. And a lot of that comes down to you know ultra processed foods, food compounds that we were really never exposed to throughout human history. Um, you know, ultra refined sugars and grains and um, environmental exposures, a lot of sedentary behavior, chronic low-grade stress, sleep deprivation. These are kind of norms in our modern society that all tell the body that there is, it, it signifies threat and can cause the body to become maladaptively chronically inflamed. Um, inflammation is a super valuable thing in our body when it's actually responding to an acute threat, like a bacterial invasion or something like that. But when it's chronic inflammation, cause your body thinks you're under stress, cause you just have a ton of emails in your inbox, it's not actually adaptive and it can be destructive. So this journey, um, really actually led me away from practicing surgery and I left the operating room and I moved into a field called functional medicine, which is. Um, an area of medicine that is really focused on underlying un- understanding the root causes of diseases and really trying to understand like what is the fundamental physiology that leads to disease and how can we affect on that level um, rather than you know more treating symptoms and symptom management and this is rooted in a really interesting area of research called network and systems biology which really loops back to my undergrad time at Stanford because those were areas of medicine that were starting to be researched. And and the foundation behind network and systems biology is this idea that with our modern genomics evolution and proteomics, we are now able to like look at all these different diseases and look at what's happening like inside the cells, what genes are upregulated, what genes are downregulated, what proteins are in higher expression amongst many, many different diseases and see what the core links between diseases are and build sort of what you would imagine as a network or a web of diseases connected by these common pathways, these common issues. And that creates a network. And that's very different than our traditional view of medicine and diseases, which is much more silos. We think of like depression, obesity, uh, prostatic hypertrophy, and diabetes as four silos. We would treat them completely differently in our modern society. Um, We would treat them with drugs that address each individual organ system. But if you look on a systems or network biology level, you would say, oh, well, like all of these have upregulation of TNF-alpha and inflammatory cytokine. So like, what does that mean? Like, maybe if we approach that part of the pathway that connects all of them, we can actually have multifarious um, impacts by just addressing that core pathway. So it's a kind of a different approach. And I think it's where medicine will ultimately be moving. So I opened up a boutique private practice that really focused on this way of addressing um, health and really kind of created the practice of my dreams, which was spending two hours with patients discussing all of their symptoms, all of their history, all aspects of diet and lifestyle, and seeing if I could through that history, but also through advanced lab testing, see if I could figure out what the commonality and the links were between their different conditions and help them approach um, their health at that level. And what I found in my first year of doing this practice um, was that so much of you know, the core things that were connecting a lot of my patient's symptoms were came down to basically one, inflammation, and two, metabolic dysfunction. Metabolic dysfunction being like how they're processing energy and glucose in the body. You know, so many patients are dealing with either diabetes or um, high, you know, like prediabetes or obesity or overweight, or they have high cholesterol. And all of these things are fundamentally metabolic problems, which is basically the body is storing or processing energy in the wrong way or or, or, um, 
in a somewhat dysfunctional way. And so that was related to so many of the um, conditions I was seeing. And so, you know, it really became down, came down to coaching people about how to change in a very personalized way, diet and lifestyle to improve their metabolic health and their inflammation. And then I'm thinking like, oh my gosh, I'm saying the same thing over and over and over again <laughs> in my practice. And I, people are getting better, but it is a lot. This is a lot. Like, and I had a lot of patients just have radical transformations in as little as three months because I took the time to really explain what I thought was going on and what the lab data was showing. And they really bought into all this data that I was sort of presenting and, and, really understood this network biology sort of framework that I was putting forth. I, I had a huge whiteboard in my office and would kind of draw it all out for people. And people just like, once you understand it, like it's a lot easier to make changes, but there's a lot of coaching about individual lifestyle factors. And I'm like, this is great. I think I'm really onto something, but at this point I need to scale this. If this is going to be, you know, if I'm, if it's going to be sustainable for me, for my patients. And if this is, you know, if, if I want to really share this me message more broadly. So I became really obsessed with this idea of like, how do you scale the coaching and behavior change that's required to change the conditions in the body that ultimately address the root cause physiology that's leading to a lot of chronic morbidity in our country? So it became, how do we scale essentially these processes? Because I can't be with the patient 24 hours a day, coaching them and telling them what to do. And this really led me to a real focus on digital health and how to use tech-enabled solutions to essentially do what I was doing for patients. But in a real-time way with um, something that could be with the patients 24 hours a day. And so I see a huge relationship between really um, functional medicine and a real root cause approach to health, which ultimately lead, requires behavior change and different choices that are personalized and sustainable and the digital health you know, movement because people have their devices with them 24 hours a day and they can generate incredible amounts of data and can, if, if used properly and wisely and intelligently, can really help people create sustainable behavior change that ultimately addresses these things like inflammation and, and metabolic dysfunction and, and hopefully in the long run, um, you know, keep people healthy and keep people out of the operating room. So that's kind of the, the journey of the last 15 years. But, um, but yeah, that's where, yeah. So that's, that's where we're at now. That's amazing. I love how every step was giving you one piece of a puzzle to get you to where you are now. It was each one seems like a stepping stone of learning. This is what's causing this. Oh, fascinating. There's a whole world outside that's actually you know, interconnected. You know, the, the thing that really resonated too with me is you talked about the network or web of pathways of the comorbidities. And I think as a runner and athlete, I've even noticed this in my own body where my heel might hurt, but the root cause is that my calf muscle is really tight. Or you might have knee pain, but the root cause is an IT injury or things like that. So oftentimes the, the, the place that people complain about the thing that is the thing they want to fix is ultimately not the issue that they need to address, whether it's a behavioral change or something different. That is such an amazing analogy. I, I really love that. Um, I have a number of friends, you know, just through the medical community who are who are chiropractors and who think a lot about um, like fascia and how fascia affects athletes and and that sometimes it can be, you know, sort of some fascial um, bundling up in the neck that's actually like potentially leading to a problem like in the lower leg because of the way that like the body is essentially wrapped, shrink wrapped in this in this tissue. And you might need to work at work an area far away from the area of actually symptoms like in an athlete to really get like true recovery. So yeah, what you're you're saying um, is is so interesting. Yeah, that's fascinating. So two more areas I just have to dig into. So the first one is around the nutrigenomics. So that's a fascinating area that I definitely hear more people talking about. 
maybe not using that term, but I was curious whether there are differences in age groups, whether you're looking at different expression of genes for children, adolescents, adults based off of nutrition, or if that's something that is pretty much continuous across all types of people. Yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, so fundamentally, you know, nutrigenomics is essentially the study of how you know individual molecular compounds in foods can impact either the upregulation or downregulation of genes. And so, so as as far as I'm aware, you know, I don't I don't know that that's going to be widely variable across the lifespan. But what is so interesting is how it might relate to something like epigenetics. So you know, genetics is essentially your baseline genetic code. We have 3 billion base pairs of ACTGs and, you know, that they make up our chromosomes and, and, you know, different genes and whatnot. And epigenetics is the three-dimensional folding of the genome. So like how it's actually bundled and wrapped and the epigenetic modifications can happen throughout an entire lifetime, largely based on, um, things like what we eat and how we live and what even what we think, like our thoughts and stress can affect the folding of the genome, the three-dimensional structure. And that structure um, changes whether we can access certain genes at certain times in our life. Um, and so, uh, so it's certainly possible. And I think extending the definition of nutrigenomics a little bit farther, certainly um, the foods we eat and what we expose ourselves to will change the the folding of the genome over the lifetime. And so um, even with something like um, type 2 diabetes, like we know that there are different epigenetic modifications in certain metabolic diseases than there are in people who don't have um, those conditions. And so that's a very active area of research right now. Um, and what's especially interesting about epigenetic modifications is that those are actually also heritable. So you can actually pass those on. So not only the genetic code, but the genetic folding. And there's been some really wow. sort of sad and unfortunate research about um, like adverse childhood events and trauma and things like famine and other really um, you know profound experiences like that, that those epigenetic modifications that happen may in fact be like um, heritable throughout generations. And so you can imagine like intergenerational um, you know, um, response to stress and things like that, actually, you know, it, there is some evidence that that can kind of be passed down. So it's just, I think, a real testament to the fact that, you know, anything we can do to create um, uh, more, I think, stress resilience and um, create, you know, really positive uh, nurturing environments for for people in the, the very early phases of life, um, it has lasting effects down the road. Yeah, it'll be really fascinating to see how that evolves in, in the thinking around children and as early as possible. There's a lot of conversation around microbiome as well. And if you you know think about the effects it might have compounding over the life of an individual, I can imagine at some point in time, you're going to want to start personalizing diet and personalizing behavior as early as possible just for long-term outcome. Absolutely. Like, I think that's so important. If you think about like a value equation being, you know, outcomes over cost and we want value to be as high as possible in healthcare, then looking at early childhood interventions like is feels like a no-brainer in terms of high value. Um, and the microbiome piece is, is really important. A, a friend of mine, Cheryl Suhoy, she's um, starting a company right now in the maternal fetal microbiome space. And um, I, I believe it's going to be a company that's testing essentially the mom and the baby and their microbiome, but then doing it in a serial way. So like over and over throughout the early part of life, um, with the idea being that it can almost be like a biofeedback tool. 
to help people make choices that really optimize the microbiome um, of the child early on in life. A lot of the microbiome, as you know, I'm, I'm sure many listeners are aware, is passed from the mother to the baby during birth, and um, and then sort of, uh, and that that is usually um, done through. Uh, that that microbiome transmission is most effective through a vaginal delivery because of the the bacteria in the vaginal birth canal, and so the rise of C sections has an impact on that. Um, and then, of course, we have quite a propensity to use antibiotics widely um, in our country in the early years of life, which has a huge impact on microbiome. We have quite a bit of pesticides in our foods in our country, which has an impact on microbiome. And then, of course, you know, early childhood diets are very different than what they used to be, um, introducing a lot of processed foods at six months, um, high sugar foods, low fiber foods, and then kids are not um, breastfed, you know, quite as long as people were traditionally. And so all of those things have a direct impact on microbiome and microbiome early in life has a direct impact on health outcomes throughout the lifetime, including like a direct relationship between propensity to become you know, overweight or obese later in life. Um, and so just thinking about something, you know, as, as something that's very modifiable, like microbiome and how we could impact that in a very, very cheap way early in life. And it could have, you know, profound impact on things as serious as obesity or diabetes later in life. Like it's, it's certainly something um, that I'm excited is getting a lot more attention now. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating to me. And I guess kind of continuing that thread on the personalization of real-time feedback about your body. I'd love to hear a little bit more about levels. And ultimately, how did you make the jump from being a surgeon, a physician, to now getting into the tech-enabled healthcare world? And tell us a little bit about what is the mission of levels and kind of why you're so excited about it. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so levels is the company that I uh, founded. And Levels is, I think the easiest way to think about it is that this is the first uh, tool that we have that closes the loop between what you're eating and the immediate impact on your health. And so for the first time, this product is able to tell people, um, they can, people can specifically say like, this food is good for my body or this food is not good for my body. So that's something that we, that type of objective feedback about diet has not existed before, but um, now, so what we do at levels is we take a technology that's existed, um, for quite a while, which is called a continuous glucose monitor. And this is a tiny little wearable sensor that you can wear on the back of your arm. That's traditionally been used as a treatment tool for people with type one and type two diabetes. And what it does is it sits on the back of your arm and it takes glucose measurements every 15 minutes, 24 hours a day for the duration of wearing it. And they last on your arm for 14 days. So you're getting that data stream. 24 hours a day sent to your smartphone, and you can see exactly how your glucose is fluctuating throughout the day. And glucose is the foundational unit of energy in the body. It's a substrate. It's you know colloquially known as, as blood sugar. But um, the body usually keeps it in a really tight range. But after you eat, or if you're stressed, or if you're sleep deprived, or if you have or haven't exercised, it will have a huge impact on your glucose levels. And we ultimately want to keep our glucose levels really flat and stable because that's associated with optimal health. And big fluctuations can create... Um, can create big problems. And so, um, so what Levels has done is made this technology that's traditionally been for people with a diagnosis of type 1 or 2, di type two diabetes and made this accessible to anyone who wants to really understand their diet and their lifestyle with intense granularity and get real-time feedback on how what they're eating is affecting their health. And so the reason this fit so much with kind of the story I was describing earlier is because in my practice, you know, so much of my time was going towards talking to people about their diet and 
their lifestyle. And, you know, it's, it's very hard to make sustainable behavior change when you're given a lot of recommendations and, and you don't have a clear sense of whether the, these choices you're making, which sometimes can feel like sacrifices are directly impacting your health. Sometimes there's quite a delay between the choice you're making and the actual, um, impact of it. Like, you're making good choices, but you may not see, you know, weight come off quickly, or you're making good choices, but you don't, you're not going to get your cholesterol or your blood sugar test for months down the road. And so it's, it's kind of hard to adhere to some of these, you know, comprehensive lifestyle changes when, you know, there's not that direct feedback about what you're doing and whether it's really helping. And so anything you can do to close that loop for people between their action and the reaction is positive for sustainable behavior change because it essentially taps into that reward circuitry of like, this is a good decision. This is working. I want to keep doing this. And also, if you can see that something in particular is having a very negative impact on your health, it is much easier to sort of let that go. You know, if if you've loved your oatmeal for breakfast every year, every every morning for years, and then all of a sudden you see that 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 oatmeal actually, you know, led to a a, a blood glucose spike up to 180 milligrams per deciliter of glucose, which is super super high, but something we often see with people eating oatmeal. Um, and then you see your glucose come crashing down, and and you know you find that oh you know you're a little bit post meal slumpy after that meal you've got an energy you know slump and you're a little fatigued after breakfast always and now you finally can like wrap that all up and say like oh it was the oatmeal that caused that fatigue that caused a big problem in my body it's a lot easier to maybe you know eliminate that as a breakfast choice or modify it you know add fat and protein to blunt the glucose spike or maybe take a walk after breakfast to blunt a glucose spike so there's lots you can do to modify foods to you know improve their glycemic impact so um so it's really really uh, great for for behavior change to have closed loop biofeedback, and that's something we've been really missing in nutrition and what levels has has solved. And so we pair we we make this technology accessible to you know health seeking individuals who have never been able to access this technology before. We've set up a telemedicine network who evaluates patients for this prescription only device, and if it's uh, deemed safe, they're prescribed this. Uh, glucose monitor. We have it shipped from our partner pharmacies directly to their home um, with really snazzy um, performance covers that keep it adhered to the skin and, you know, withstand sweat and water. And um, and then we've paired it with a machine learning driven app that essentially takes the raw glucose data stream and makes it extremely actionable. So it tells people, you know, much more clearly than just seeing like a glucose line bouncing up and down and says, you know, in particular, like this is what f- this food did to you. This is like what the glycemic impact was. This is things that you can do to help, you know, modulate that glycemic impact. Um, these are, you know, behaviors that you can do to help uh, blunt a glucose spike. And so give people really a comprehensive picture of how to keep that glucose line as flat and stable as possible. And um, there are just really wide reaching health benefits to to having a more stabilized uh, uh, glucose uh, level. So yeah, so that's so it really came out of this desire to scale behavior change solutions to help people close the loop between their behaviors and the actions and in doing so give people real really agency and autonomy to make these sustainable decisions. Um I think one other just small thing I'll mention is that it's kind of interesting like, you know, if a lot of people might say like, oh, you want to keep your glucose low and flat, like, well, don't eat sugar and like don't eat carbohydrates. And that seems pretty simple. But (laughs) there's some interesting research that's come out in the last five years, um, especially this landmark paper out of the Weissman Institute in Israel in 2015 from Cell, 
the journal that was called Prediction of uh, Personalized Nutrition by Prediction of Glycemic Responses. And they basically put continuous glucose monitors on like a huge number of healthy individuals without any metabolic disease and then give them all standardized meals with specific carbohydrate amounts. And they basically found that everyone responds differently in terms of how much their blood glucose goes up to a the same carbohydrate amount. So you and I could both eat a banana and I could go up 60 points on my glucose and you could go up five points. And so it's probably a better metabolic choice for you than it is for me. And um, so there's so much variability between how people respond to food. So having so so not only as a behavior change tool, but as a tool to make interventions more effective and more efficient, much less trial and error, that was really where I saw a huge benefit to my patients. And I really wanted to scale that uh, more broadly. So what got me so excited about what you guys were doing at Levels is there's something incredibly powerful and very innately human about visualizing something that you can't normally see. So visualizing what is going on inside your body is just insanely powerful. And I've seen this in real life. Same thing, like a good example is if you visualize the germs on a doorknob versus a toilet seat. You know, logically, you might think toilet seat is way more disgusting than a door handle. But when somebody shows you, you know, microscopic images of how many more germs are on that door handle, immediately, you're never going to want to touch a door handle again. Or I saw a very, we're recording this in the middle of a global pandemic. And I saw a really interesting thing around cruise ships or any kind of buffet line, where they had people put specific type of paint that was uh, fluorescent paint, you could only see under a UV light on their hands. They went through the buffet line, they ate their dinner, and then afterwards they turned on the UV lights. And you could just see it everywhere. And it's so powerful. And when I first heard about levels, I, I had the exact same reaction as that's what you're doing, but you're doing it about your your body, your essentially what foods do what to you. Yeah, that's exactly right. And that uh that paint example is gonna haunt me, I think, for for a long time to come. That's that's brilliant. <laughs> it was it was amazing. Yeah, it Good was thing buffets are off the table for quite a while, I think, given COVID. Exactly. One, so I guess two questions on how it actually works. You know, this is something that is very novel by democratizing access to information like this and technology like this. But as a prescribed product, how are you getting around, you know, these patients that don't have type 1 or type 2 diabetes? Yeah, absolutely. So right now, these devices are FDA approved for people with type 1 and type 2 diabetes. So we, our partner physician network, um, when they are prescribing these devices to individuals, this is for an off-label use. And that's totally a legal thing to do. Essentially, as long as a doctor feels that a treatment modality, um, the benefits outweigh the risks, and that's justified in medical documentation, then it's perfectly reasonable to prescribe something for an off-label use. But, you know, traditionally, um, in our medical culture, like we were talking about a bit earlier with this idea of more of a, a bias towards reactionary medicine, we've tended to not think about glucose ever until someone has a diagnosed metabolic condition. Like, diabetes. And it's sort of been this, this idea of like, oh, if you're not diabetic, then why would you worry about glucose? It's, you know, who cares? It's, you don't have a problem. But the reality on the physiologic level is that metabolic health is a spectrum and that, you know, getting a diagnosis of metabolic disease is not an on-off switch. It's not a light switch. You don't just one day wake up with, with this issue. It's been brewing and developing probably for years, if not decades. And Every single time we have a high glucose hit, you know, in our blood because of, you know, what we're eating or how we're eating or the other lifestyle things that affect glucose, like stress, sleep, exercise, micronutrient status, um, et cetera, 
each time you have one of these big spikes, you're moving, you know, a little potentially a little bit down that that spectrum of metabolic dysfunction. And so while we haven't been traditionally um, primed to necessarily care about people who aren't in the haven't met the diagnostic threshold yet, I think it's it's incredibly important to to really be focusing on those people because that's the opportunity where you you can get things really tight and under control and potentially never get to the stage where you're actually reaching a clinical threshold and something of disease and something that I really love. I've had a CGM on now for about a year and you know I know exactly what my glucose is doing 24 hours a day. And at this point I have just like a second nature um sense about what my glucose is. I've I've developed we kind of call this like getting into metabolic awareness like you you've tracked it so much that it's it's kind of easy to sort of tell inside your body like what's happening whether you're having a low or kind of or hyperglycemic or whatnot and um there's actually a fun term for that called interoception which is this idea that um of being able to like uh understand the internal cues of your body like you can you know there are some people who can really sense their heartbeat and i think there's like this and that's called like heartbeat interoception and i think there's probably going to emerge this new idea of like glucose interoception which is this idea of like real intense body awareness about what's going on with your metabolism at any given time um and i think that you know the more that we can um get people to be in touch with that as early as possible um the better um so yeah one thing that's you know nice about having done this now it's like if i go to the doctor and I get my fasting glucose checked by the doctor, there is no chance that I'm going to have a surprise that day. There is going to be no hard conversation where the doctor is like, you have this problem. Like, I know exactly what my glucose is doing. And I know that exactly what I have to do to keep it stable. And I know that if I don't make those choices, which happens some weeks when I'm really, really busy, my fasting glucose goes up, my average glucose goes up. And when I'm really on my game, um, when I'm meditating and doing my breathing practices and going on the Peloton, you know, multiple times a week and getting to bed, you know, on time and getting eight hours of sleep and eating the way that I know doesn't have a glycemic, huge glycemic impact on my body. I know my average glucose is going to be much lower. So it's just this whole new radical sense of autonomy and agency that I think is so powerful. Like the control is very much shifted and, you know, you don't have to, yeah, like I said, you don't have to walk into the doctor's office and like think that there's going to be a bomb dropped about your metabolic health. And I think that's a really beautiful thing. And right now it's estimated that 88% of Americans are metabolically unhealthy. There's a UNC study. Wow. Yeah. UNC study that came out that looked at five markers of metabolic dysfunction, metabolism being essentially the way we process energy in the body. And it was looking at cholesterol levels, fasting glucose, um, and waste measurements. And basically, if you looked at if you looked at all those fat five factors that they measured, if you had none of them that were abnormal, you were part of 12% of the population. And one or more of them, you were part of 88%. So we are at scale sort of mismanaging the way we're processing energy in the body, um, largely due to, you know, the 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 diets, the standard American diet and the way we're living. And so to be able to have a tool that can can really address that. And ultimately, that's the North Star of our company is to make a really meaningful dent in the metabolic health crisis in that 88%. There is the possibility that that 85, 88% could come down to probably about 2 to 3%. You can't, I mean, it, there's there are certainly factors that are going to eliminate, you know, metabolic dysfunction from ever, um, you know, being eradicated. There are many, many inherent, you know, genetic factors and whatnot that are a part of this. But um, 
you know, the vast majority of metabolic dysfunction in this country is preventable. And um, I'm talking about acquired metabolic dysfunction, so not necessarily type 1 diabetes, um, which is, you know, a condition that um, is is very much based in genetics. But 95% of the the diabetes in this country is type 2 diabetes, which is um, which most of which is preventable. So, um, so yeah, so I think it's an exciting time to be working on this space because it's so actionable and it's, even if you have these conditions, they are reversible. So it's like, this is a really prime opportunity to be working in that space because it's certainly not hopeless. And I think by giving people data and then really wonderful interfaces to engage with that data, it actually makes the process of changing kind of painless. Like it's actually kind of fun. It's gamified. It's kind of addictive to like track these things. And so it's, you know, I've, I've certainly modified my diet a lot over the last year with this tool and it's never felt like a sacrifice. It's just actually felt like, um, just sort of empowered and and exciting and um you know modulating things and biohacking so it's it's a way to i think create some really effective um change at scale without it really being that that traditional sense of like oh i'm having to diet and i'm having to exercise it's just switching things up a little bit based on your body so yeah, and, and to, to the whole point from the very beginning of the conversation that everything needs to be personalized. It's whatever is right for you. It might be very different than somebody else. I guess one question, though, you've been wearing it for a year, but somebody that wears it for 14 days might have a lot of revelations about what is affecting their body. How do you make ongoing change? You know, I think for people in general, it's like New Year's resolutions, right? People get really excited and go to the gym all of January, February, not so much. And then by March, they're done. How do you kind of create that sustaining change in people's behavior? Yeah. So our program inter- levels is fundamentally a core one month program. So it's two sensors worth. So it's you get two 14-day sensors and you wear those and you use the app. And that's sort of what we call our metabolic awareness journey. And in that month, there's usually a ton of magic moments and light bulbs where people are like, oh my God, I didn't know that oatmeal was doing this to me. Or like just a lot of things like that where you realize like, oh, this food has been causing a problem and I never realized it. Um, so that's really awesome for the first month. And I'd say, and and our product will ultimately um, be a subscription product as well um, where people can continue on. I think that's also, there's a very important element of that as well. But it's kind of a different journey once you get past the first couple months because there's, like you said, there's all these like findings and, you know, the first month you learn all these things. Um, but where I think it really gets powerful in terms of long-term use is the accountability and sort of the keeping on track and the control. And that's what's been so powerful for me and I think for a lot of our early customers is who have used it um, more on the subscription side of things is that you know it just keeps you on track. Like no one wants to see a big red spike and know that that's you know, causing inflammation, oxidative stress, glycation, which is when you have a high glucose spike, you have glucose kind of stick to things in your body and that's not good for physiology or function. So like you see that spike and you know, you know, this is causing a bunch of downstream physiology. It's causing an insulin spike. We know that an insulin spike direct insulin is the hormone that's released to help you take up glucose into your cells. And when you have an insulin spike, it immediately also tells the body to stop fat oxidation. So if you see that spike, you know, you're getting an insulin spike, you know, you're not burning fat for a little while. And so certainly if you're on a weight loss journey, like that's huge information to have. Like, um, so I think that accountability and like long-term, um, sort of 
ability to control is really helpful. And I will say that even now, I still do have some of those light bulb magic moments. Um, just the other night, I made this new dish. I, I got this. I'm vegan, and um, I got this wonderful vegan instant pot cookbook. And I put a bunch of it was a vegan cheese sauce made with like onions, garlic, potatoes, carrots. Um, and you blend it all up in the Vitamix and it turns into this like queso looking sauce. And it was truly one of the best things I've ever eaten. It was so delicious, but it made me go up 68 points on my glucose. I, I, and I even put it on top of like tofu and some vegetables and stuff, which like has protein and should theoretically kind of blunt the spike. But those really highly cooked, you know, really well cooked potatoes and carrots together. I re- rarely eat potatoes. It shot my blood glucose through the roof, giant red spike. I had the low, we give scores for different things. And I had the lowest score I've ever gotten, which was a one out of 10. And it was just like, wow, like, man, like if I'm going to eat that much of a white potato of that type of carb, which I know, I know from my history is a problem for me, but I, I intentionally paired it with the tofu and, um, you know, some other fat in the meal to try and blunt that, but it just wasn't enough for me. And I felt so crappy after that. And so it was just like a good reminder that like, you know, eating white potatoes is probably not the best thing for me. Um, but there's other people I know on the team who can eat potatoes and it's really not a problem at all. So kind of a helpful reminder, but yeah, so it's, it's, I think it's a two phase journey. The the initial phase, which is really the insights and the, the magic moments and like a lot of learnings and then moving more into the, the accountability and long-term sustained behavior change piece of thing, kind of like wearing a Fitbit, um, you know, heart rate wearable retention is really, really high. People don't usually like toss their Fitbits of their garments out after a month or two. They, they like seeing that long-term accountability. And it's a very similar uh, mindset to, to, I think, with uh, the glucose tracking as well. Yeah, there's no question that everything is moving towards personalization. And there is no one size fit all. And I think we are now at the point where technology can actually solve that. You know, I think before we could give lowest common denominator, lowest common denominator advice which was trying to do the greatest good for the greatest number. But now everything is coming down to what can I do for you? And what is your body doing? What do you need? What do you want? Those type of things. This is fascinating. For any of the listeners out there who want to learn more about their own metabolic health, you should definitely check out Levels. What's the website that they can go it's to? It's www.levelshealth.com. Awesome. Check it out. The last question that I always like to end on, Casey, is there any advice you've been given in your personal life or career that's really stuck with you and words of wisdom you live by? Oof, man, I would say twofold. One is nutrition, which is eat more fiber. (laughs) So (laughs) I think that um, we have a we have a absolute fiber national deficiency. The average American is eating about 12 grams of fiber per day. We should be eating probably, in my opinion, 50 to 75 um, fiber feeds our microbiome. Our microbiome makes our neurotransmitters. It makes uh, fuel for our gut cells. It makes uh, metabolic byproducts. It is They make anti-inflammatory byproducts. You want your microbiome to be happy. So every time I'm eating, I am loading up on fiber in every single meal. And I'm thinking, how can I make this the best possible meal for my microbiome? So my microbiome can make me the happiest, most energetic, most healthy version of myself today. And so I would just say, uh, practically speaking, um, that would look like including 
beans as, and as many meals as you can, if you can tolerate them. Sometimes you have to work your way up on beans because, you know, they can cause some gas. But once you adjust to them, they don't. Um, and legumes like lentils. And then I sprinkle chia seeds and flax on top of everything because it has tons of fiber and omega-3 fatty acids as well. So fiber would be my nutritional one. I would say um, on the more like life side, I have been reading a lot of the Stoics, so like Marcus Aurelius and Seneca, and I really love them. I've been reading Ryan Holiday's book, The Daily Stoic, and I've actually got my essential Marcus Aurelius right here. And I think some of the overarching advice in that is very much like the growth mindset type of advice, like Carol Dweck's book, Growth Mindset, which is another one of my favorite books. And these, they really like feed off each other. Like, and just the idea that like the obstacle is the way, like any, um, challenge that you're facing in your life is there to teach you and it's not a setback and, um, you know, challenges are kind of, <laughs> uh, potentially, you know, gifts to help you grow. And, um, I think it, it's been making me think a lot about my healthcare perspective as well, because fun- one of the, the, um, maxims in functional medicine is that like essentially symptoms are signs from the body that are telling you something about dysfunction under the skin. And so you have to listen to your symptoms and be, you know, almost grateful that they are there because they are telling you the answer. They're telling you that there's dysfunction and we have to listen to them and not ignore them. And so, yeah, it's just, um, I think that's helpful for me when sometimes you get into a stressful time of life and, you know, it's easy to kind of think like, oh, there's a lot going on and this is really hard. But I think reframing it like the Stoics do into like, this is an opportunity and something that I'm trying to be taught um, has been very helpful for me. So those are my two. (laughs) Love them. Those are both very great words of wisdom. Well, thank you so much, Casey. This has been a pleasure to get to know you and also to learn more about Levels. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Elaine. It was great to chat with you.